Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales the Series podcast. Also check out our mini episodes on our Grave Tales YouTube channel. Today's podcast feature story is from Grave Tales Melbourne, Volume 1, The Bradman of Billiards, Walter Lindrum. Had it not been for the perseverance of a father who believed his son could be a champion... Walter Lindrum may never have won the world title in 1933. Named the John Bradman of billiards, Walter Lindrum was so good that an unprecedented action took place. What was that, Christopher? Well, he was so good that I don't think he ever knew how good he was. He came from a long line of billiards champions in a time when billiards was a very popular game in Australia, probably not heard of that much these days. Was it like pool? Uh, sort of, yes, except playing pool you have a number of balls which you sink in succession. Right. Billiards is played with two cue balls, that is you have one and I have one, and they're marked differently. Sometimes they're different colours. Right. Sometimes one will have a spot on it and the other one won't, and then there's one target ball, right. if you like. And the game is played by scoring various ways, by hitting your ball, the red ball first, and then the opponent's ball, by pocketing your ball off one of the others, by pocketing one of the others, that is knocking it into the pocket on the table. How do you win? You win by accumulating the most number of points in the time that's being allowed for the game. Right, okay. And sometimes those games went for two weeks. Oh, my God. Uh, and they'd be, say, two hours a day for two weeks. Huh? Or they'd be the first one to 5,000 points. Right, so they were okay. played in, in different ways. But it was a game that's kind of passed by now. It's hard to understand the way it was in Australia, the number of tables that were available to average folk in public places like hotels and billiard halls and barber shops was amazing. They were everywhere. And it was a great game and Walter was its champion. But Walter was a generational champion, wasn't he? He was. He was really lucky to be actually able to play the game. When he was a little kid, about three years old, he got his fingers caught in what's called a mangle. Now, a mangle was a thing, which is what it did to his finger, Mm. by the way, mangled it. But a mangle was a thing that was used on a washing machine and it was two rollers that went round together driven by a couple of fairly solid cogs. I remember them. You'd feed your clothes through and that pushed the water out. Exactly right, before Mm. they were hung out to dry. Mm. And Walter managed to get his finger caught in the cogs of this thing. But his father, whose name was Fred, there were lots of Freds in Mm. the Lindrum family, taught him to play left-handed because he damaged his fingers to play the normal way around so he played the opposite to just about everybody else. But his father was a champion and so was his grandfather. His father, well his grandfather, yeah, Frederick Wilhelm von Lindrum (laughs) um, became our first world professional billiards champion, that is Australian, in 1869 and at the age of 20, Walter's father, Fred II, won the Australian Billiards Championship. So you had grandfather, father Mm. and then Walter was two down the line in his family so there was a Fred three which was his older brother and if that all sounds confusing it is slightly imagine being their mother calling them to dinner (laughs) so (laughs) his father played a major role in his young life teaching him how to play and then training him for hours a day Uh, he practiced for up to 12 hours a day wow uh, when he was just a kid he was born in Kalgoorlie in WA 
which is how he got his name, W.A., Walter Albert Lindrum. It was Mm. the first Lindrum to be born in Western Australia, so the father figured that he should carry the name. So W.A. Lindrum, Walter Albert, and he would be the greatest of the Lindrums. There you go, that paid off. All right, well, give us a couple of examples of how good he was as a champion. Well, he played his first professional game at 13 and his first 500 break came at 14. Now, 500 is the amount that he scored in one turn at the table. Right. So he continuously played to score more than 500 and he did that at the age of 14. Wow, okay. He had this remarkable ability with the cue. During his career, he would compile 711 breaks of 100 or more, 29 in excess of 2,000 and top 3,000. 17 times. So Mm. this is how good he was. And that was all in one go at the table, Mm. sometimes there for two or three hours, compiling these massive scores. Family moved around a fair bit, the Lindrums. From about 1912 until 1993, the family ran a succession of billiard rooms. The first ones were in St Kilda. Then in 1914, they moved to the London Tavern in Elizabeth Street in the city. And then the one that probably people of my generation remember best, which was called Lindrum's Room, was in Flinders Lane. They moved there in 1922. Not that I remember it that far back, (laughs) mind you. But you remember those rooms, don't you? I do. Yeah, the billiards room. The billiards rooms in Flinders Lane were a big part of our growing up as teenagers and then as young men in Melbourne. It was the place where everybody went at lunchtime Mm. to get a couple of frames in, if you could. Did you race down in your lunch? Absolutely. Oh, yeah? But you always went to Hosey's Pub first to have a Hosey steak and chips, which I think cost a dollar. Wow. And then downtown <laughs> to Lindrum's in Flinders Lane to see if you get a table. Often, because it was so popular, you couldn't. Yeah. But if you didn't, then up in the back of this room, as I remember, had quite a low ceiling. Right. But it was big. There were just billiard tables, you know, beside each other for the length and depth of this room. But up the back, in the back right-hand corner, if you couldn't get a table, was the place to go and watch the really good players wow. try and become the next world champion or practice to become the next world champion. And they'd be up the back under this sort of cloud of smoke <laughs> that was generated nice. by the people watching. Wow. Uh, and it was a fascinating place to be. And mm. My best mate Slogger and I used to go in there on the weekends which was when you had a better chance of getting a table on, say, a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, spent hours there. Wow, how fantastic. You just see these sort of champions in action as well. Yeah, it was a funny situation in the sense that there were champions, but there also there were those who were there to make a quid. And so there was a fair bit of money changed hands. Did you ever see any of the Lindrums? No, I didn't. Right. Not ever. We're talking the 1970s here. So yeah, the, yeah. Then when I remember it, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. But it was the place to be. I mentioned Slogger then. His father had a billiard table at home. Mm. So, I mean, that's how... Popular it was, it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of people had pool tables at home. When, when I was younger, that was sort of more the 80s. Yeah. Not so much the billiards, so that must have fallen out of vogue. It did. It was things like Pot Black on television that sort of really made snooker very popular. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Yeah. So when did he hit the heights of being a world champion? It was 1933 when Walter had his big breakthrough and he beat a fellow in England called Joe Davis. Came back to Australia and the headlines screamed, Walter Lindrum gets his crown at last. So he was back at home as world champion. He made it clear that he wasn't going to be defending his crown in England. Mm. And so the 1934 defence of his title took place in Melbourne, right in the middle of the city's bicentennial celebrations. There were three playing off uh, for the championship in New Zealand by the name of Clark McConaughey and Joe Davis, the bloke he'd beaten in England. Walter kept his title and he held it right through till he retired in 1950. Wow. 
despite the changes that were aimed at nobbling him, and there were plenty, I mean, one of the reasons that Lindrum was so good that he was a master of what was called the nursery cannon or the close cannon. Now, that's when one of the scores you can have in the game of billiards is a cannon, where you hit one ball first, then onto the second. Mm-hmm. So onto your opponent's white ball and then onto the red counts for a couple of points. And so these guys were so good that they developed the game so that they would be able to get the two balls, that is their opponent's ball and the target ball, close together and then just work the millimetre at a time around the edge of the table. It'd be hellishly boring to watch that, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure could that, go on for hours, sure that the it? old masters of the billiards would call it hellish. <laughs> Hellishly boring. But it would be if they're working that around the table for, what, a few hours at a time and clocking up all these points. Oh, yeah, uh, they were. And sometimes they stayed at the table for hours. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes the games were a fortnight long <laughs> and they'd run up as many as 7,000 points, yeah. you know, during this time. He kept his championship until mm. 1950 when he retired. But when we said that an unprecedented unprecedented action took place at the start of this. What was that? The unprecedented action was that because he was so good, the only way they could beat him was to change the rules. Right. And so they changed the rules to limit the number of points that you could score from these close or nursery cannons working the the two balls around the table. It was limited to, first of all, to number of points that you could score from, but then secondly, areas of the table that you could get nursery cannons and not others. He still kept his championship regardless of the hobbling, so to speak. Yes, yes. Yeah, he was just an absolute wonder and people would come from all over the place to, to watch him. In fact... Don Bradman, the Australian cricketing champion, used to pick his times when he was in England to go and watch Walter play. Oh, wow. He wasn't always as lucky in his personal life, was he? Walter's personal life could be described as somewhat complicated. Mm. Included three marriages. His first to Rose Coates in August of 1929. She was on her deathbed when the marriage took place in Sydney. Walter was engaged in a match up there against Willie Smith, the world champion. Rose had travelled from Melbourne to watch him play, but due to her being so ill, she'd seen very little of it. One of the newspapers reported on Thursday night, Lindrum, who made a record break of 2002, was playing under the stress of his wife's illness and confided to a friend that when he leaned over the table, there were moments when he could scarcely see the balls. Mm. Um, Tragically, she passed away in a private hospital in Darlinghurst from heart failure the day after their marriage, the 24th of August. She was only 21. Yeah, she she was. That match naturally was abandoned and Walter went back to Melbourne with the body of his wife. Uh, The family was no stranger to tragedy in one of the strangest traffic accidents in Melbourne. The car containing his older brother, Fred Three, and his wife was travelling into the city and had a collision with a tram. The tram knocked the car around and the car was hit by another tram coming the other way and sandwiched between the two. And Fred Three's wife, who was in the front seat of the car, died. Uh, Fred Three got out uh, without being hurt. The paper reported the Argus. When the trams were backed away, the car fell to pieces. Mm. Only the rear wheel and the rear axle were undamaged, so a horrendous accident. Mm. 35 years old, he married again. His second marriage was to Alicia Hoskin in 1933 in London, ended in divorce 22 years later uh, in 1955. I read they went without a honeymoon because he was competing that day. So they just went into the registry office at lunchtime, got married, and then he went on to the tournament that afternoon. Yeah, it seems that everything Walter did throughout his life was in some way interrupted or affected <laughs> by a billiards tournament. Or the other way around. Yeah. His, his billiards life was interrupted by a, a yeah, marriage. Yeah, something like that. He did marry a third time, and I think his last wife outlived him. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. 
he was an interesting sort of a character, Walter. There was a bloke by the name of Tom Cleary who became the world amateur billiard champion eventually. He toured with Walter for three months during the war while they were raising money for the fighting forces. And in an interview, he was asked what he thought of Walter. What happened? Did he ever teach anybody his skills? And he replied, no, I think he was that brilliant. He didn't know where to start. He was a very peculiar bloke, a good bloke, and yet a funny bloke. He never wanted any money. He was careless like that. He'd be offered money, but he wouldn't take it. He never passed on his knowledge, unfortunately. When I came back from England, I thought a thousand break is not beyond me. If only I could play nursery cannons. I said to him, Walter, any chance of my getting a few tips? And he said, yes, come down to Albert Park. But every time I'd come down to his house, he had an excuse that he couldn't show me. And as a result, he mm-hmm. never taught me anything. Mm-hmm. And yet he was a household name, Walter, in the days when Australia was weighed down by depression. He was one of what were known as Australia's world beaters, the the people who gave us hope Mm. when things were tough during the depression. Uh, He was regarded as one of those, along with Don Bradman, world's greatest batsman, Mm. Farlap. Of course. Who won and raced to the joy of so many people. Kingsford Smith, the aviator. A rower called Bobby Pierce. A Hubert Opperman is the other one I should have mentioned. A cyclist. And politician, yeah. Yeah. And certainly Walter was in there. And it's really interesting about Sir Hubert Opperman as he became because the question was often asked that he got a knighthood and yet Lindrum didn't. The Sydney Morning Herald carried a story that said, one Sunday morning the then Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies took Walter to the Windsor Hotel in Melbourne, which is a very famous hotel down there, and said that there was a knighthood in it if he could reconcile with his divorced wife. Walter didn't get his knighthood, so all we can presume with the absence of any other evidence is that he refused. It's a bit like golf, isn't it? I read that he had to give opponents quite a big lead. He was handicapped. But I heard there was a good story, and you'll know it, where someone who didn't recognise him offered to play him. Yeah, this bloke was in a country town, this story is set, and there was a local bloke. He was the local champion of the town. He didn't recognise Walter when he was in the billiard hall. And he challenged him to a match, first to 100 points. So Walter managed to hit the red ball and put his ball into a pocket 34 times straight to get to the 100 points he needed. The other bloke didn't get a shot. So then the other bloke said to him, well, look, I'd like to play you again. And this time I'd like to play you for a wager. But Walter said to him, I don't feel I should bet. I haven't seen you play. I don't think he was under any threat. (laughs) I think his life was marvellous and he was a very different sort of a person, obviously. So... What happened in Walter's life? He went to the Gold Coast on holidays and suddenly, out of nowhere, he died. Now, it was officially coronary vascular disease, but there are those within the Lindrum family who believe the real cause was a suspicious steak and kidney pie, food poisoning, in other words. It never went any further than that other than a a suspicion that's what happened to him. And that was 1960, wasn't it? It was. And he was brought home from the Gold Coast to Melbourne for burial. Yeah. There was a huge funeral for him at St Paul's Cathedral. I think about 1,500 people attended that. Sir Hubert Opperman, who I mentioned earlier, raised the money for his rather interesting grave, which is in the Melbourne General Cemetery. If you want to find it and have a look at it, you just go in the the front entrance on College Crescent, down about 250 metres on the right-hand side of that main drive-in. You'll see his grave and you can't miss it. It's a billiard table with a couple of cues and a couple of balls sitting on the top. Fantastic. It sure is. He was a great man, a different sort of a man, and I'd love to think that he would be remembered by the words of the Manchester Guardian's cricket writer Neville Cardis, who once described Don Bradman as the Lindrum of cricket. Grave Tales feature Grave.
Okay, so who's the grave of this episode? Well, it's Emily Ma. Now, we've done the story in another podcast, so go and hear the whole story there, but I wanted to just mention a unique grave for Emily. Emily was a wife of Frederick Deeming. She had the misfortune of loving the wrong man. Mm. Oh, who hasn't done that? Anyway, she met and married Frederick Deeming and she sailed from the UK to live in Melbourne. As I said, you'll find Frederick's story amongst our podcast called The Lady's Man. Frederick murdered his first wife and children and then he murdered his second wife, which was 26-year-old Emily. So you remember that morbid story, burying them under the heart stone? Yeah. Yeah. But we're talking about her grave today, and it's a very large grave in the Church of England section, First Avenue in Melbourne General Cemetery. It was erected by public subscription, and what I find interesting is that the 1890s inspector of nuisances, Edward Thunderbolt, thought he would warn all women with an inscription that he put on Emily's grave, and it read, To those hereafter who come reflecting upon this text of her sad ending, to warn her sex of their intending for marrying in haste, is depending on such a fate too late for amending. Now, I'd just like to say to Edward on behalf of every female listening, it was the 1890s, Edward, you know, people married in haste. You didn't have sex usually before marriage. You liked them. You might have had a cup of tea together. You might have had a few strolls, chaperone, and then you're married. So I suspect a lot of marriages were in haste, and I think it's a great shame that Emily's grave has to have this little warning from Mr Thunderbolt about the fact that if you marry in haste, this is what can happen to you, because I'm sure there are lots of marriages in haste that were very happy unions. So, Emily, don't you worry. You to know. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the follow us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales the series, available in paperback, ebook and select titles on audiobook, music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.